I told you last night I left 70-degree weather in Maryland. I didn't tell you it's going to be 32 on Tuesday when I get back home. I thought I'd get a little warmth, though, in... I've got... Yeah, there we go. Coming here to L.A. at this time of year, I know it can be a little bit cold, but I was hoping it would be a little bit warmer. Reminds me of what Mark Twain said. He said the uh, coldest winter he ever, his coldest uh, winter he ever spent was a summer in San Francisco. I kind of feel like that right now. That, that needs to go back to the uh, first slide, guys. So what we're doing tonight is I don't have my computer hooked up to that, so I'm going to be controlling that and my computer. But I wanted to start by uh, telling you to go to page 23 if you have your book with you. Do you have your little book with you? your little manual, page 23. I want to share with you some resources. Is this thing cutting out on me? Anyway, we'll get that settled. I'll keep plowing forward till, till that gets settled. Anyway, I want to share with you some resources that are exciting. Hope Channel's on DirecTV. We've been on there for over, what, about two years now. Yes, sir. You want me to use that? You know, if God made William one more hand, that'd be really good. But uh, so is this not working? It's working. Sometimes it's on and off. So Sometimes it's on and off. Just, just turn this on for now. And then when I get my hands free, I'll use that. So where was I? Yeah, direct TV. By the way, I never got introduced other than Gary Gibbs. I'm talking about Hope Channel because I work for Hope Channel. I'm vice president there. I do a number of things, do marketing. I do evangelism. Evangelism, of course, is what I love and do some TV programs as well. But uh, the reason I'm at Hope Channel is because we need to reach people with the gospel of Jesus Christ, with the three angels' message specifically. And, you know, I, I believe that we ought to do everything to reach people. We ought to do the Cole Porter work, the Bible studies, the evangelistic meetings, and all that. And yet, we still won't reach all of them. But there are ways to reach the masses, and that's using mass communication. So we need to be on the Internet. We need to be on the radio. We need to be in the TVs. And so DirecTV goes to 19 million uh, homes, which represents over 50 million people here in the United States. And if you do it on average, it's on average every one out of every six homes. And yet people need to know out of all those channels where to find real hope. And so what we have is an outreach resource. It's door hangers. You go door to door. You don't even have to knock on the door. You just stick it on the door and run if you're scared of <laughs> knocking on doors. And you leave that there, and it points people to Hope Channel and DirecTV. Let me give you another statistic that, that I find phenomenal. I, I've questioned this statistic many times, but it's absolutely true. 250,000 people a day in the U.S. are making decisions where they are going to get their paid TV from. Are they going to get from DISH, DirecTV, Comcast, some other cable network? Where are they going to get their paid TV from? quarter million people a day, a day. That's a huge number of people, right? So our task is to point them over to DirecTV to get Hope Channel. 
And the way we do that is with these door hangers. Now on these door hangers on the bottom, you have a, a photocopy of one in your book. On the bottom, it also has a tear-off card offering Bible studies. So you have two approaches here. You're offering them 24-7 message of God through Hope Channel and DirecTV, but you're also offering them Bible studies in the card. They can tear it off, send it back in, and we can send it back to you to fulfill so that you can actually go to the home and do the Bible study, or, or we can send it and have it done as a correspondence course. We have a door hanger that focuses on Bible prophecy. We have a general one if you're dealing with a very secular area, just dealing with uh, family life. And then we have one on health. So there are different approaches that you can use. We'll send these to you free. We've got people ordering these, you know, a hundred at a time for their neighborhood. And we've got people ordering these a hundred thousand at a time. A hundred thousand. Like they'll take all their pathfinders out and put them out on the streets for 36 days, you know. Go going door, going to door to door. But no, they, they'll go out in masses and pass out 100,000 of these. And it's working. We just had, uh, got an email this past Christmas from a lady in Texas who is a pastor. No, I know, I know, no, I know. I got a phone call. We told this story the other day. Somebody called up. Is she pastoring the Adventist church? It's a woman pastoring the Adventist church. Don't deal with me. Deal with the real general conference on that one. That's not even the general conference, that's an NAD issue. But anyway, she's a pastor of a non-Adventist church, got that. So she's, uh, she, was, she was getting discouraged by what she was watching on TV all the time. She said, I need hope, I just need some hope. And so she turns to the direct TV channel listings and guess what she finds? Hope, hope channel, oh that's what I need. And she tunes in and she begins watching and it changes her life, and she's now baptized. She's now a member of the Adventist Church. Now, her husband was baptized. She was baptized a couple months ago, and then her husband was baptized on Christmas this past year on Sabbath. And then other members, it's a little tiny church, other members of her little small church are coming over to the Adventist Church as well. And her church is really a mission to the, uh, the homeless and the poor people in that city. And it's working. I got an email yesterday. This is from North Louisiana, the guy named Floyd. He said in 2009, he had a heart attack. And in the midst of the heart attack, he dropped to his knees and he started pleading with God to save his life. And he felt that his heart relaxed and he was fine. Well, after that, he said this. I'm quoting his email. I just got this yesterday. He said, upon realizing I was so biblically illiterate, I asked God to lead me to a real church, and he capitalizes real, where the real truth, and he capitalizes truth, was being taught. Now, it's very interesting he sent this, because we just met with a major television executive who's helped start uh, some major TV networks, and he said, you guys need to be the people of the truth. You know, every channel has its brand, and he knows our brand real well, and he studied all our programming. He's an Adventist. Seventh-day Adventists are people with truth, and we need to brand, this is where you will find truth. And here, we don't even say that, and yet people are finding, and they're saying, he says, I'm looking for the real church where the real truth was being taught. Within four days, I was flipping channels, looking for something besides garbage to watch on TV. You get a lot of that on direct TV, too and landed on Hope Channel. 
as I listened more and more, I realized the teaching sounded like the real truth of the Bible. I began watching Hope Channel every day and have watched it every day for several hours, several years since. Yeah, several years since. He says hours, but he means years. I know God led me to Hope Channel so I could hear and learn the truth about life, the Bible, and God. Praise the Lord. My entire life has been changed since those heart attacks in December 2010. Eugene, I don't know if you know this uh, church. I joined the SDA church in Magnolia, Arkansas, and was baptized on the 18th. What do you say? Now I say, here's a guy out there praying. God knows where he is, and God connects the dots for the guy and turns him into the TV. And it's a powerful medium, and you can participate. We'll send you these things free. And I have a, a handout that where you can order them. I have this here. You can come see me. Also, the other resource I want to tell you about real quick is HopeNet Online. This, we have a lot of evangelism training teaching on here. We have like 250, 300 videos of evangelism training teaching that you can go online, you can watch it. Uh, Eugene Pruitt's stuff is on there. Uh, I've got my stuff on there. We've got Eric Flickinger's, a lot of different people on there. We're soon going to change this platform to another platform where you'll be able to watch it on your iPad and your iPhone and be able to use it on the run like when you're in somebody's home. We have C.D. Brooks and others, uh, John Bradshaw and others, answering Bible questions, difficult Bible questions. So you're in the home, somebody asks you a difficult question, you say, you know, I was just watching something on the internet the other day that was answering that. Can I show it to you here on my iPhone or my iPad? And you can pull it up and you can show it to the person, you know, somebody like C.D. Brooks or John Bradshaw actually answering the question, or just watch it yourself and uh, learn from it yourself and parrot it back. Last thing I want to show you here on uh, page 24 is, is worth taking note of, those of you who are doing evangelism. How many of you know who Nathan Green is? Can I see your hands? Nathan Green? You like his work? It's fantastic work. He did a uh, TV show with us called The Master's Brush where he's painting and he tells the story behind each painting, the inspiration he's received for it. And there are 20, I believe there are 28 of these. What's it say on that page there? 28, 28 good. It's 28 paintings that we feature on the show. And what we've done is we put these on 5 by 7 postcards. And on the back, we've included a Bible study from Mark Finley's book, Studying Together. And the study goes with the painting. Now, we make these, we offer these to the viewers as an outreach. But I made a mistake. Now, let me tell you what my mistake is. I ordered these to give out to the people who view. And we're, we're putting out a bunch of these. But I ordered enough that should carry us into the new millennium. I hit, that, that's the difference of hitting one wrong key on the computer in haste. And I have thousands of these. Now my mistake is your blessing. <laughs> because I was lying awake at night thinking, what am I going to do with all this stuff? I like Nathan Green's paintings, but man alive, I could wallpaper this whole church here and still have some left over. So I said, what am I going to do with these? And then I was going to evangelism council. I said, I know what I'll do with these. I'm an evangelist. I would give these out at my meetings. And I would encourage people to collect all 28. Come each night, you get another one free. It's got the Bible study on the back that goes along with the topic. 
that's what I'm going to do. So I went to evangelism council this past December, and I got rid of about 5,000 of them. And I got rid of them below price. So I went to the printer that sold them to me, who when he saw my order, he said, wow, what's Gary doing ordering so many? But he was so happy he was printing so many, he didn't call me and say, did you really mean that big number? <laughs> and so he's kind of assumed some of the responsibility for my stupidity. And he has cut the price below price. You'll never see these this price again. These retail, the whole set retails for $12. He's enabling me to sell these for $5. $5. You have to buy them. Here's the catch. You, they, they come not in a whole pack like this. This is all 28 shrink wrap because you're going to use them one a night in evangelistic me. You have to buy all 28, minimum of 100 each. They come shrink wrapped in packages of 100. So it's five times you know, 28 uh, is what you'll pay for. It's $5 for the, uh, the set. Five times a hundred, five hundred dollars is what it is. So if you're interested in that, I've got a few left. I think I've got about another thousand left or so. And if you're interested in that, uh, call that number, order it because they're going quickly. If you're an evangelist, this is a fantastic thing to do, and you'll never see these again at price. All right. It is now eight thirty-two. And I'm going to end at what time? Who's in charge? When you finish. No, no, no. Give me a time. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you. Thank you for your love for us. Your amazing grace that we heard Marion sing about earlier. Lord, if it weren't for your grace, where would any of us be? Thank you for your grace. Thank you that we can be co-laborers together with you. It's your grace that even now enables us to be effective witnesses for you. Tonight, Father, we come, and I just want to pray for your spirit to be here in a very special way. Be present with us, Lord. Lift us to heaven's courts. May we sense your spirit here. And I pray, Father, that our time together will be time that's anointed with your spirit, teaching us, guiding us, inspiring us. For your glory, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Your book announces that this topic's going to be great acts to follow. I'm going to cover that tomorrow. I'm going to cover a different topic that I think is a crucial topic. Last night, we talked about the most overlooked secret to success. What most people do in making mistakes is they focus just on convincing somebody a truth and they forget that the heart is really what you need to win if you're going to win the person. But I'm going to look at something now with you that is, is critical to the topic that I've been assigned and that is the evangelism cycle. You know, a cycle assumes you've got to start and you go through a process and then it comes full circle and you start the cycle again. And yet there is a crucial part of the cycle that is Seventh-day Adventist. I think that we overlook time and time and time again. I've been at this for more decades than I'd like to admit. But what I see often is that the focus is majorly put on the evangelistic meeting itself. 
But the follow-up, what happens after the evangelistic meeting, is given very, very little attention. Now, praise God that things have grown and evolved to a point where we now put a lot of emphasis now on what happens before an evangelistic meeting. We talk about the pre-work, getting ready for a meeting. And so we've got Bible workers now. When I first started out in ministry, I started as a coal porter, and Eugene just uh, quoted something from the Spirit of Prophecy, talking about coal porter work, laying the foundation for other ministry, and I'm a testimony to that. That really is truth. But I then went into Bible work, and at that time, you didn't have Bible workers across the U.S. I mean, I didn't know any other Bible workers across the U.S., and I was being paid the handsome sum of $50 a month to do Bible work. They fed me a little food and gave me some gas money and gave me a fantastic experience in door-to-door ministry with people doing Bible work. But now today we've got Bible workers, we've got pre-work going on, we have evangelistic meetings, and yet even still there's very little emphasis on what happens when that part of the cycle's done. What do you do when the meetings are over? That's what I want to talk to you about. Because, brothers and sisters, I want to propose to you that if we don't do this part of the cycle, then everything we've done before is really worthless. And that we need to be much more intentional on this last phase of the cycle if we're really going to have work that stands the test of eternity. It's really a very important thing. You know, you need to know where you're going if you're going to get there. You know, it's said of Columbus that when he left Spain, he didn't know where he was going. When he arrived in the New World, he didn't know where he was. And when he went back home, he didn't know where he had been. And I think sometimes, you know, that's what we're doing. We, in evangelism, we need to be very focused about where we're going, where we are, and where we've been when we're working with souls. So I want to start off by asking you the question, what is the true purpose of... What is the true purpose of evangelism? This weekend we're, we're talking about going, we're talking about winning souls, we're talking about evangelism. I'd like to suggest to you that the purpose of the church is much broader than just getting people to join it. Would you agree with me? You know, sometimes we look around and we say, you know, we got to get people to join the church, and that is true. But isn't it more than that? I mean, why are we trying to get people to join the church? Is it so that we can feel really good? We convinced X number of people, so if we could convince that number of people, then we must be right? Is it some sort of psychological, self-convincing thing, exercise that we're going through? What is the real purpose of the church? What is the real purpose of evangelism? Why do we do this? We get them to join the church, is that it? The purpose of the church is here in Matthew 28, 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. That's the great commission as we heard this morning. Our co-mission with Jesus Christ. It's why he founded the church, isn't it? To tell the world of the good news of salvation. Next. He goes on, he says, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Next. So if you look and examine this verse, you'll find there are four verbs. 
Three of them, go teach and baptize. Now, I want to ask you this question. When have we fulfilled the Great Commission? When have we fulfilled the purpose and mission of the church according to the charter of the church as given here by Jesus in Matthew 28? Is it when we have gone? Now, Adventists are good at going. We even name conventions that. <laughs> Go. We're good at going. And that's why, as a church, we are a worldwide, global church. We've gone to the world. I mean, just a little humble group of people starting in 1860. And now we have gone to the world. And we're in more countries of the world than any other Protestant denomination. And we check those countries off on a big list. And we say, we're in those countries. We have gone. We have fulfilled the Great Commission. Have we? It's part of it, isn't it? We need to go. But can we say we've done it? Have we fulfilled the Great Commission? What about teach? Teach them to observe all things that I've commanded you. Adventists, we're good at that. I mean, we teach the Sabbath, don't we? We're teaching all the things that Jesus has commanded. And we teach it all. We focus on teaching. And can we say, okay, we've gone, we've taught, and we're teaching the truth. We're done. We've accomplished what the church is called to do. Not yet. How about baptizing? Baptizing kind of is like the apex of it all, you know. We get excited. I mean, it's, it's thrilling to see someone dedicate to their lives to Jesus in the waters of baptism. So we've gone, we've taught, and now somebody gives their life to Jesus, and they're baptized. Have we completed the Great Commission? In a lot of churches, in a lot of evangelism, that's where we're done. And we hang the people up to drip dry, and we say, all right, let's go again. Let's go teach again. Let's go baptize again. And so we constantly baptize, go teach, baptize, and we constantly hang the people out on the line to drip dry while we go teach and baptize again. And that's because we have not really focused until in recent years on this other most important verb where he says, make disciples. Now, you see, we only have focused on that more recently by looking at the newer translations that really bring out the true meaning of the Greek there because what he says in the, in the old King James, it says, go therefore and teach all nations, right? But the better translation of that is go and make disciples of all nations as we read earlier out of the New King James Version. And so we've not kind of focused on that because we hadn't realized fully it was there. But now we do talk about making disciples. But I'll be quite honest with you, we have not had a coherent, definable, implementable strategy for making disciples in the church. If I were to go to your church and I was to ask you, how do you make disciples? How would you answer that? If I go and ask you, how do you make a pathfinder? You can show me how you make a pathfinder. Or if I go and ask you, how do you make an elder? You can show me how you make an elder. You can show me how you make a Sabbath school teacher. But how do you make a disciple? 
Do you have a discipleship course? Do you have a discipleship track? Do people sign up for disciple making to be made disciples in your church? I believe in most churches, in 99.9% of the churches, the answer to that question would be no. We don't even have anything like that. And I want to invite you to be a pioneer, a revolutionary. God's working on people. I'm meeting them. I was in Germany just a few months ago. And uh, Michael Dornbrock, who has a, the Josiah School of Evangelism, is like an AFCO over there, but affiliate with the conference, not with AFCO. He's writing a whole discipleship course. NAD has just come out with a discipleship course. I've not seen theirs. I've seen Michael's. But people are writing these courses, tracks to disciple people. And this is when you have fulfilled the Great Commission. The going, the teaching, the baptizing is for one purpose. What purpose is that? To make disciples. To make disciples. Well, what does that really mean? Let's unpack that a bit. Let's go to the next slide. What is a disciple? There are many ways to define this. I like the way Jesus defines it in Matthew 10, verse 25. He says this. Read it with me out loud, if you will, off the screen. It is enough for a disciple that he be like his teacher and a servant like his master. Jesus says a disciple is like his teacher or like his master. And that's what the word literally means. It means one who is taught. And so when we are called to go make disciples, we are called to make people like who? Jesus, the master of us all, the great teacher. Teach them to observe all things that I have commanded you. We're to focus them on Jesus so that they become like Jesus. Does that happen overnight? Do you have that type of radical, lifelong transformation overnight? It starts. It can spark. It can start. I mean, I went to an evangelistic meeting high on drugs first night. Couldn't even focus. But I said, i got to come back. i got to figure out what these people have to say. And I didn't miss a single night there every night. Wouldn't even get high on the weekends because I wanted my mind clear to hear the truth. And at the end, my life was totally transformed. And yet, the work had only begun. Only begun. There was a whole lot more work to do. I'll talk about that in a moment. Listen to what Ellen White says on the next slide here from Testimonies, Volume 4, page 488. The more man views his Savior and becomes acquainted with him, the more he will become assimilated to his image and work the works of Christ. You see, this is what God proposes to do in us. As we become more acquainted with Jesus, He actually does a miraculous transformation in our lives and makes us more Christ-like. That's what I want. How about you? I want to be more like Jesus. I want to be His disciple. Listen to what He says on the next, next quotation here. Volume 5 of the Testimonies 235, he proposes to make us like himself, true in every purpose, feeling and thought, true in heart, soul, and life. Can you read the last sentence with me? This is Christianity. Isn't that a phenomenal definition of Christianity? 
I mean, that's who we are. We're Christians, right? We're Christians foremost, Seventh-day Adventist Christians, secondly, more defined. But we are Christians, and our work is to go out and help others embrace Jesus Christ. We're to make them disciples. And if we are intentionally making disciples, then we are helping them learn how to become like their master, Jesus Christ. What do you say? I mean, that's the goal. It's not just to teach doctrine. Doctrine is an introduction to Jesus. It teaches you who Jesus is. You know, I, I got a pet peeve. Here's my pet peeve, since you asked. We baptize people and we ask them, do you believe in the teachings of the Seventh-day Adventist Church or the doctrines of the Seventh-day Adventist Church? I don't like that. The Seventh-day Adventist Church baptizes people who believe in the doctrines and the teachings of the Bible. Let's say it that way. Amen. Have you accepted the teachings of the Bible as em that are emphasized by the Seventh-day Adventist Church? You see, and, and when you get it out of the Bible and you don't get it from the creed, then the Bible teaches Jesus Christ in every one of those doctrines. And they have a transformational effect in our lives to make us more like Christ. Now, on the next slide, we, I, I raise this question. Why is it important that we disciple new believers? Instead of just going, teaching, baptizing, then we say, listen, we are committed to you for eternity. We want to teach you how to walk with God in this life and throughout the next and so we've got another course that we want to sign you up for. We want to invite you to take our discipling course to learn how to have a lifelong loving relationship with Jesus Christ. Why is it important that we do that? Here on the next slide, I share with you an answer, I believe, that Ellen White poses in Volume 4 of the Testimonies, 485. All the members of the church, if they are sons and daughters of God, will have to undergo a process of discipline before they can be lights in the world. Now, watch some of the language she uses here. If they're sons and daughters of God, they're going to be disciplined. I've got two kids, I've got a 10-year-old and a 7-year-old girl. And uh, it's very interesting uh, being a father <laughs> to two vocal, emotional, bright, intelligent little girls. And we had this discussion recently. They said, Daddy, we don't like discipline. You don't love us when you discipline us. So, well, honey, I love you, and the proof that I love you is that I do discipline you. The Bible says over here in Hebrews, it's, it's terrible to have a preacher as a father, I tell you. It says right over here in Hebrews that the father that loves their child chastens and disciplines and corrects their child. Oh, that shuts them up because they respect the Bible. But I say, what is it about discipline you don't like? We don't like writing sentences. I mean, we've done everything. I mean, they've written books of sentences and memorized scripture and all sorts of stuff. And, you know, they don't come with manuals. You wish every kid came with their unique manual. So they, they don't like to spin. And I just tell them, well, I like it. <laughs> I actually tell them I don't like it either. But my goal is to help you grow up and be a bona fide Christian who's positive, who lives for God and makes a contribution for his cause and to this world. So the other day we had this discussion. They were with one of their little friends 
and they were complaining about what their friend does and their friend disobeys their mother all the time and they said you know their mother doesn't even discipline them it's a great thing about kids they forget previous conversations and they don't connect dots then you get to do that as a daddy I said, really? She doesn't discipline? No, no. She, the mother tells them what to do, and then the child just does whatever they're going to do, and they lied the other day. They told their mother a lie, and one of my kids said, and I told, I said, she's lying, told the mother, she's lying. <laughs> and you know what she did for lying? She just told her such and such. Well, they know what I'll do. Lying is a cardinal sin in our household. You don't lie where we string you up in the backyard in the middle of winter for two days. No, we don't do that. But anyway, they went on and on about this mother who doesn't discipline and the unruly kid who's not learning their lessons and all this. And I let them just go and go and go. You know, it's kind of like catching a big fish. You let the fish run and tire themselves out. And then you pull and really reel them in. So then I reeled him in. I said, so you, you think she needs to be disciplined? Yes, Daddy. You think discipline's good? Yes. You think it's necessary? Absolutely, Daddy. That girl needs to be disciplined. I said, well, I'm so glad to hear you say that because, you know, we had that other conversation, and I was really considering not to ever discipline you again. But since you believe in it so wholeheartedly, we'll just continue discipline that. <laughs> they thought about that for a moment. Well, I changed the subject real quick. <laughs> Nobody likes to be disciplined. That's why Paul wrote what he did to the Hebrews, that any chastening for the moment doesn't seem pleasant. But remember, your God loves you. But listen, discipline is necessary for all of us, and we have to undergo, notice the wording here, a process of discipline. doesn't happen overnight. In order to shine us up and shape us up to be God's light in the world. What do you say? That's what disciple-making is. The word is the same, discipling, discipline. It's God teaching us and shaping us and molding us and getting us where we can be his lights shining in the world. Volume 4, Testimonies 485, continuing on with this quote, There is much for each to unlearn with respect to himself as well as much to learn. Isn't that powerful? We've got to unlearn some things things, and then we have to learn some things. Now, volume five of the testimony says this on page 172. The ascension of members who have not been renewed in heart and reformed in life is a source of weakness to the church. This fact is often ignored. You see, this is the result of not discipling people. Everybody that comes into our church comes with a certain amount of baggage. Would you agree? Whether you're born and raised in the church or converted, you bring a certain amount of baggage. And for every one of us, there, is th there are things that we have to unlearn about ourselves as well as learn about ourselves, and we have to subject ourselves to God's process of discipling us. And yet, if we are not helping people, intentionally defining and letting people know what it means to be a disciple, if we're not helping them in this path of eternal life, then what happens is they fall into this state of not being renewed in heart and reformed in life. And then instead of becoming a light to the world and a strength to the church, what are they? A weakness to the church. And we just ignore it. God gave me a wonderful church to pastor in my pastoral years. 
a hard church. That drove me out of the ministry. Almost quit. And then I said, I'm not a quitter. I'm not quitting. Almost took calls. No, I'm not taking a call. I'm going to stay here. One of us is going to survive. <laughs> and I intend for it to be me. Here's some of the stuff I had to deal with. Walk in the church one day. Sabbath morning, I preached at my first church, came to my second church. This is a major church in the conference as well. Walk in, and the lights are all turned down, virtually off. It's Sabbath morning, man. It's time to worship God and be happy and bright and not depressed. I walk in, and my head deacon's standing in the back, and I said, uh, hey, why, why are the lights all off? He said, well, so-and-so turned them off. Really, is there a reason he turned them off? Uh, he says they hurt his eyes. Well, now I've got to define what that means. Those were brand new lights that they'd put in 20 years prior to this. And a certain part of the church didn't like the fact that they put those lights in 20 years prior, and they were still fighting the battle 20 years later, and he was going to turn the blasted lights off. And so I told Ed Deacon, I said, you know, why don't you turn the lights back on? And if he comes around and asks about it, just tell him the pastor said to turn them on. I thought I had some authority. I didn't. I didn't. Because he said, I'm not turning those lights on. He was frightened of that man. That man, I'll be kind, that man was extremely dysfunctional. You talk about a tail wagging a dog. This was a classic case of it. This guy, would, the head deacon would not turn on the lights when the pastors said turn on the lights were in worship service because one man went over there and turned them off. I turned them on. And I said, if he comes back, tell him the pastor turned them on and said, don't you dare touch them. That was the same man that came up to me during the wedding reception of the conference president's son who was getting married at our church. Came up to the, me during the reception time and said, Pastor, I'm the religious liberty leader, and next Sabbath I'm going to stand up and I've got to say something about liberty. Well, we had avoided letting him into the pulpit because it was, we had non-Adventists coming. They would get up in the pulpit and say things like, Oh, it's so good to see all that jewelry out there today and to smell that smoke. Glad you, all you visitors have come to church today. Yeah, you'll win a few souls doing that, won't you? Well, so we were very careful about who we let behind the uh, podium. But I could see the intent in his eyes. This was not up for discussion. And I said, okay, how, how many minutes do you need? He said, I don't know, 10, 15, 20, 30. I might take the whole time. I said, well, you know, I'm happy for you to take some time. But you know, this church has a value set on every, everybody's time and getting out on time. And we can't do that. So you need to tell me how much time you need. He said, I don't know. I'm planning to take the whole time. So, well, you know, they come to hear the Word of God preach, and I plan on preaching that Sabbath. He said, Pastor, I'm going to take the whole time. And I said, no, you're not. We'll see about that. It was quite a, quite a deal that we had to deal with there. Quite a deal. But we dealt with it. And he didn't take any time. But those are the type of situations we had. Another guy would meet you in the foyer, and if you didn't have the right color skin to come to our church, he would tell you where the church was down the street that would accept your color skin. And he'd give you Ellen White quotes to back it up. How do you like that for sacrilegious witnessing? 
That's what we had to deal with, dysfunction on every hand. And these were people who had been ignored. This fact is often ignored. Nobody took them on. Pastor after pastor let these dysfunctional people wag the whole church. Was it any wonder the church wasn't growing? Some churches will grow after they have a good few, couple funerals. But unfortunately, that didn't happen under my time there. Excuse me, I did not say that. <laughs> Terrible. Terrible. Discipling is critical if you're going to avoid this type of foolishness. So why are we so willing to ignore such an obvious fact? Why do we allow this stuff to continue on? Ellen White gives us the answer on page 172, continuing this quote. Some ministers and churches are so desirous of securing an increase of numbers that they do not bear faithful testimony against unchristian habits and practices. What do you say? You see, now we need to do it in a Christ-like way. We need to teach the truth and win the heart. But we need to help people be accountable to God and train them. Next slide continues the quote says, Those who accept the truth are not taught that they cannot safely be worldlings in conduct while they're Christians in name. And then it continues on here. Little self-denial or self-sacrifice is required in order to put on a form of godliness and to have one's name enrolled upon the church book. Hence, many join the church without first becoming united to Christ. In this, Satan triumphs. Such converts are his most efficient agents. They serve as decoys to other souls. You don't want to baptize the devil's convert. You got that, didn't you? So we need to unite people to Christ. We need to preach the truth. Not the purpose of my topic tonight, but conversion comes with a test. Conversion comes with a test. I don't think we ought to be throwing all the standards, we call them standards, and I hate it when we call them church standards. They're either God's standards or they're no standards at all. We throw them out the back door because we don't want to make it hard for the poor souls. But conversion comes with a test. You find Jesus when you say, am I going to keep this thing or am I going to take Jesus? And that's where people really find Jesus. That's what conversion means. You know it means the literal meaning of the word is a 180 degree turnaround, right? That's what the word means. It means you're headed one direction and you turn around. You turn away from the things of the world. A few people within our walls already baptized need to experience that conversion. But disciple making, get this, disciple making is really where conversion becomes practical and helpful. It's where you're training people through a relationship. That winsome witnessing we talked about last night. Through a relationship, you're helping them see the choices they need to make and helping them make those positive choices. You follow me? That's real disciple-making. That's doing what the church has been called to do. I want to share with you a little story here called The Revival. After the revival had concluded in this little town, three pastors got together for lunch, and they were discussing the results with one another. And the Methodist minister said, oh, the revival worked out great for us. We gained four new families. The Baptist preacher said, well, we did better than that. We gained six new families. 
And the Presbyterian pastor paused for a moment. He said, well, we did even better than that. We got rid of our 10 biggest troublemakers. <laughs> you know, if we're discipling, we must do what Ellen White says in Evangelism, page 337. Our efforts are not to cease because public meetings have been discontinued for a time. That's not the end. Once you've baptized, your work continues. Reading on here, the new converts will need to be instructed by faithful teachers of God's Word that they may increase in a knowledge and love of the truth and may grow to the full stature of men and women in Christ Jesus. They must now be surrounded by the influences most favorable to spiritual growth. That will not happen unless you are intentionally planning it to happen. Because what usually happens is the people slip through the cracks on us. We baptize them and we move on. And they don't really get discipled. So let's talk about how to do this. The mission to make disciples is to be fulfilled by the church. How do we do it? Volume 2 of the Testimonies, page 331. Our Redeemer throws souls into the arms of the church for them to care for unselfishly and train for what? Isn't that powerful? What are we training them for? Are we training them just to be Seventh-day Adventists? What are we training them for? For heaven. For heaven. And thus be co-workers with him. But the church too often thrusts them away upon the devil's battlefield. One member will say, it's not my duty, and then bring up some trifling excuse. Well, says another, neither is it my duty. And finally, it's nobody's duty. You can't find nobody. And the soul is left uncared for to perish. It is the duty of every Christian to engage in this self-denying, self-sacrificing enterprise. What do you say, church? You see, every one of us is called to go. We're called to teach. We're called to lead people to commit their lives to Jesus in baptism. But every one of us are also called to make disciples. To take that new member under our wings and befriend them and teach them how to walk with Christ. Listen, when I joined the Adventist church, I had long hair down my back. I had rock and roll t-shirts and torn blue jeans before they were in style. And I'd ride up to the church on my motorcycle. And if I didn't have my motorcycle, I'd bring my hot rod with the Jensen triaxial speakers and the Pioneer stereo blasting what I thought was good Christian rock music. And that's how I would arrive at church. I did not look like the rest of those church members. I didn't act like the rest of those church members. But you know what they did? One guy put his arm around me and he said, Hey man, I'm going out this afternoon. I'm going to go visiting people. People who came to the meetings that you came to. Why don't you go with me? And, uh, uh, okay, okay. 17 years old. And he took me out. I mean, I wasn't... I, I had a lot of rough edges. I just kind of sat there dumb and watched. But that's why I'm here today. That's exactly why I'm here today. Because they took me under their wings. They didn't say, man, you need to get a haircut. You need to clean up, throw that filthy music out. They just said, come on, go with us. And they befriended me. And many others did that sin. So let's talk about it in our next eight minutes prophetically. How are we to disciple new believers? How are we to disciple new believers? 
Churches developing a disciple-making focus will incorporate the following elements. Evangelism, page 367. I'm going to take this right out of the spirit of prophecy. Care should be exercised to educate young converts. Number one, discipling requires care. That means if you care for it, you have a concern about it, you think about it, you give attention to it, you plan for it. And you can tell people, here is how we disciple people. Now, what would you think of a family that tried and tried to have a child? And then they go to the doctor and they find out, yeah, you're probably not going to have it naturally. So what we need to do is infertility treatments. And they go through all this horrendous process, expensive process of, of infertility treatments. And finally, they have a baby. You know, they don't have a litter. They have a baby. And they have the kid. And they bring the kid home only to neglect them. <laughs> Would they do that? Would they do that? No. Why? Why would they not do that? Tell me. They have too much invested, don't they? They've got too much invested. They're not going to neglect that kid. And so the reality is, is they've got them enrolled in school on day three after they're born. You know, they're the smartest kid ever alive. And they've got plans for that kid. The same should happen with every new child of God that's baptized and joins God's church. We ought to have plans for them. We ought to have care for them. So if you're going to disciple in your church, you need to get people together and say, folks, we've got to do something for every new convert. I don't care if they're the child of an Adventist church family. There needs to be a process for every single new member in your church. Give some care and attention to it. Secondly, she says, care should be exercised to educate young converts. It is an educational process. And there needs to be some educational curriculum put to this. Now, the other thing about education is you realize that people don't learn everything overnight. I was a brand new church member in uh, Baton Rouge, Louisiana is where I was converted. And down in Louisiana, they eat everything that creeps and crawls even after it stopped crawling, in fact. And I learned to eat crawfish in Louisiana. We moved from Pennsylvania when I was eight years old, and I first started watching people eat these crawfish. You know, they're horrendous-looking creatures. You know what they look like. you like miniature lobsters. And you cook those things alive. I mean, you throw them in the pot alive. And they, you know, if you could understand their language, you'd hear them, Aah! they're doing this. And you cook those things alive, and you pull the tails off, and you eat the stuff out of the tail. And I ask, what is that yellow thing going down the rib of the tail? Oh, that's just its intestines. Ugh, you eat that stuff. Yeah, you put some hot sauce on it. It's really good. And then if you're a true blue Cajun, you suck the heads. You take the head, you suck the heads. I'll invite you to eat afterwards here. Well, I, you know, I go to church Sabbath morning, and one Sabbath afternoon, shortly after being baptized, I went home, and my family had a shrimp and crawfish boil. I went back for Vespers that evening, and they said, how'd your Sabbath afternoon go? And I thought it was a polite conversation. They were really checking on me. And I said, oh, I had a great Sabbath afternoon. I said, man, we had a crawfish boil. Those are the best crawfish I've eaten in a long time. And, you know, they kind of looked at each other. And I didn't understand what that look was, but the next Sabbath I had an invitation home after church on Sabbath. And every Sabbath thereafter I went to somebody's home. They, they fed me lunch. They were going to keep this boy away from crawfish. 
It's an educational process. I didn't understand. I mean, I went to every single meeting. The drugs were just taking a little time to wear off out of my brain cells. And so we have to have patience with people. I remember baptizing my next door neighbor and coming home. <laughs> he was attending church. He'd been attending for quite a while too. I come home and I pull up to my house and there he is working on his brakes on his car. Hey, Jack, how's it going? Oh, it's going great. I just thought I'd work on my brakes and get this thing settled. He said, hey, you know, by the way, when I went out to get some brakes, I went by the store and they got a great sale on over at Sears. I studied with the guy. <laughs> I gave him the Bible studies. There was no one to blame to say, you didn't teach him. I taught him all about Sabbath keeping. It's, it's an educational process. You're breaking years and years and years of habit. Oh, that's nice, Jack. <laughs> oh, make a mental note. Let's do some more study with Jack. So you have to have patience with people. Evangelism, page 367. They are not to be left to themselves to be led astray by false presentations to walk in a false way. So the third element of discipling is do not leave new members to themselves. Stay close. This is so very important. If you didn't do anything else, you did this, you'd increase your retention rate considerably. Every new member needs to make seven new friends quickly. People that they'll go shopping with, they'll go out to eat with, they'll go do social things with. You need to do that because you're having to replace a lot of their social network. And by becoming a friend with them, then you're going to learn what their needs are. It goes back to this winsome witnessing. It's that mingling and sympathizing and ministering to their needs and winning confidence so that you can disciple them and help them grow in Christ. But a lot of times people come into church and, man, we don't make friends of them. What are we thinking? Because that's critical to their ultimate success in the eternal pathway. And so we're not to leave them to themselves to be led astray. We're to stay close to them. I intentionally link new members with someone. I call it spiritual friends. I have a whole program for it. If you're interested in it, I'd be happy to share it with you and give it to you on uh, email it to you. But spiritual friends, where we intentionally link people, and we tell them, this is going to be your spiritual friend. You're new here. We want them to help you get acquainted with the church and introduce you to folks. And it's powerful. It's absolutely powerful. And I wish I had more time to cover it, but I don't. Notice when she goes on to say this, they should teach faithfully all that Christ has commanded. So we're to teach the new converts the doctrines again. We need to go through it again. They need to learn it again. And she says this here, and uh, says, everyone who receives Christ is to be trained to act some part in the great work to be accomplished in our world. So we're to take them through the doctrines again. As soon as they're joined, I believe you ought to start, if you've just done an evangelistic meeting, part of the process is start a Sabbath school for new members. You follow me? And take them through a prophecy seminar. Take them through it again. Teach them how to teach others. Because they didn't catch it the first time around totally. Take them through it again. And it will be powerful. It will really help them. And so, you know, you take them through those teachings again, and it will anchor those truths in their mind and in their hearts and in their souls. So you got to do that. Now, the next thing here is we need to train them for ministry. Okay? We're to get them involved in ministry. Train new converts for service. Get people involved right away in the church. You know, sometimes we wait around and we say, well, they're a new member. They, they can't work yet. You know, depending on how often you have a baptism in your church, you could be a new member for five years. You know that? 
They'll say, oh, that's the new member. I've, I've had people tell me that. Oh, yeah, they're a new member. Oh, when were they baptized? Oh, let's see. Uh, 1993? <laughs> new members. New members. Isn't that fabulous? And so you need to get them involved as soon as they're... I, they got me up teaching Sabbath school. I taught an adult Sabbath school class, 17 years old, still wearing the long hair and all of that stuff. But you know what that got me doing? Studying my Bible. I couldn't even speak the English language properly. Man, I went to Louisiana public schools. What do you expect? Always the last. The Arkansas, Louisiana, Mississippi always vie for last place in the national educational system. But they got me up sharing my faith, train them for service, got me out witnessing to people who came to the same evangelistic meetings I went to. And then I had a friend take me out. He said, we're going to go door to door. What's door to door? Is that what the Jehovah's Witnesses do? No way, man. I'm not doing that. My, my family used to duck and cover every time the JWs came to the door. You know, we'd muzzle the dog, we'd turn out the lights, and we'd hide. You know what I do? Those of you who do door to door, when I walk up to a house now, and I ring the door, I wave on the way up in case they're looking out, like, uh-oh, he saw me. <laughs> and then when I ring the doorbell or knock, I stand back and I look at the windows, and if I see the curtain peek, I go, hi, hi, how are you? <laughs> oh, no, he saw me, he's got to answer the door now. <laughs> We're to train him for service. This goof guy called, took me out door to door with his guitar. People would answer the door and he'd say, hi, my name is, and tell his name, and then he'd strum his guitar, we're here to sing you a song, and he'd start singing some Christian song. And I was like, man, where's the bush I can hide in? <laughs> I was so embarrassed. <laughs> but you know, that guy got into homes, and he gave Bible studies, as corny as he was. And, and now I teach people not to do it that way, but I do teach people to go out and share their faith. Train people for service. It'll make an eternal difference in their life. So here you put it together. Care, educate, stay close, teach them, train them. This is Ellen White's formula for discipling someone. Now quickly, let me just go through what the Bible's formula is here. We read it earlier in our scripture reading. Character qualities and skills to develop in disciples. You find it right there in Ephesians 4. And, and it's interesting, when you read Ephesians 4, verse 8 here, it says, Therefore he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now, where do these men and women reside who receive these gifts? Help me out. In the what? Come on, it's not, it's not calculus. Where do they reside? Who are these people that he gave his gifts to? To the church. That's right. They reside in the church. Now, the church exists for a purpose. What's that purpose? To make disciples. We're to go teach, baptize, make disciples. The reason these gifts are there is for the purpose of making disciples. Your Sabbath school teacher who has that gift should be thinking about, I'm building disciple here in these little kids. I'm building character. Listen to what the Bible says about this. Ephesians 4.11, He himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of the Christ. So if we're going to make disciples, if we're going to use our gifts to accomplish what God wants, then we need to get people involved in ministry. 
Get them involved in ministry, just like you're involved in ministry. Every new member, get them involved in ministry right away. Ellen White says in volume 5, page 390, there are many who would work if urged into service and who would save their souls by thus working. Isn't that phenomenal? I have no question at all that I have experienced this, this uh, quotation here. God got me involved in ministry to save my soul. You know, when, when you're working for others, you find that you're the one that gets the greater blessing ultimately. You know, you might be wrestling with something, you might be, you know, clouded over with some discouragement or something, and then you go out there and you end up engaging with someone who's going through what you're going through. And you end up encouraging them with the words of Scripture that ultimately encourage you. It's just like what Wes said earlier when he quoted from 1 Corinthians, that we comfort others with the comfort wherewith we've been comforted. We save our own souls. And we need to help. If we're going to disciple people, get them involved in ministry. Don't wait until they've grown stone cold like everybody else to get them involved. Then it continues. It says, till we all come to the unity of the faith. Now, consider this. We need to intentionally train people how to have unity. You know, we're not naturally a united species. You know, we fight, we war against each other, we segregate. We're not naturally a united species. People do not leave this church mostly because they disagree with the doctrines. They leave because they get disunited with people. They get fed up with people. And they leave. And so what we need to do is intentionally teach them to be united. I told you a moment ago about Jack, my next door neighbor. He is, he is a perfectionist. He came from the military as a perfectionist. He got fed up with our imperfect church and he stopped attending. And I said, you know, I got to go have a talk with Jack. You know, nothing else had worked. And so I went next door. I said, Jack, pulled out the big guns. I've been thinking about you. I've been praying about you. And I've got a message for you from the Lord. Hey, it works for the Pentecostals. Why not? No, it was. God had impressed my heart. I need to go tell him some things. And I gave him a mini Bible study on unity and patience. Talk more about that in a moment. And at the end of that study, I said, Jack, God is trying to teach you unity and patience. And that's why you need to come back to learn the lesson God has for you. And Jack said, well, I haven't done anything. I can't reverse. I'll be in church next Sabbath. And he was. You know, we would have lost him if we would not have stayed close to him and gone back and showed him what the Word of God says on this. We would have lost Jack, no question about that. Continues here, and of the knowledge of the Son of God, we got to teach people how to have a relationship with Jesus. One of the most valuable things somebody told me goes along with uh, this next thing, to a perfect man, to the measure, the stature, the fullness of Christ. They told me when I first joined the church, they said, keep your eyes on Jesus, don't look at the people. Because the people are not your standard. Jesus is. Keep focused on him and grow to him and not to the level of everybody else around you. And we need to help people learn how to do that. That we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine. We've got to teach them the word of God and how it goes together. Often in an evangelistic meeting, they get the doctrines piecemeal, but they don't realize how the whole truth fits together like a hand in a glove. They don't understand how the truth goes together. And they can't articulate it. They can't explain it. We need to take them through some studies that show them how it goes together. And I'll plug my studies, Prophecies of Hope, right here. 
because that's why I wrote it, to accomplish that, so that when their people are done, they know why Adventists are Seventh-day Adventists and that they're God's movement in the last days. But speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things to him who is the head, Christ. We need to teach people how to speak the truth in love. You know, because often they don't know how to do that. They do like what I did with my stepfather I told you about last night. You know, I'm going to blow you away, man, if you don't accept this truth. Literally, with my 410-gauge shotgun. So we need to teach people how to speak the truth in love. From whom the whole body join and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share causes growth of the body. We need to teach people that every member needs to do their share spiritually, physically, and financially, and then the church will grow. Stewardship. We need to teach them that if they're going to grow. And then lastly, I want to share with you uh, this out of Revelation specifically for us in these last days. Here is the patience of the saints... Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. In our disciple-making process, we need to teach people how to have patient endurance, how to hang in there with God, how to go the whole row. We need to teach them how to obey through the faith of Jesus and not through works. You follow me on that? All of this can form a curriculum where you can mentor people. Now, I want to share this with you in closing. Disciple-making is not done just in large groups. It requires one-on-one mentoring. You know, how did Jesus do it? Brought a few people under his wings. Ellen White puts it this way in volume 5, 254. The work done thoroughly for one soul is done for many. But the ministers have not realized this and have failed to educate persons who in their turn should stand steadfast in defense of the truth and educate others. This loose, slack, halfway manner of working, finish it with me, is displeasing to God. I want to please God. How about you, brothers and sisters? I want to go. I want to teach. I want to baptize. But I want to make disciples. I want to train people to be everything God wants them to be. And I don't want to do any loose, slack, halfway work for God. I want to do a work that stands the test of eternity. And I know you want that too, don't you? So as we talk about the cycle of evangelism, brothers and sisters, I want you to take up this challenge. That if you're going to be successful, and if you're going to have a successful church, that you'll be faithful to your calling, your purpose to make disciples, You'll focus on making disciples, and you'll have a deliberate plan to do it. Will you do that? Will you accept that challenge tonight? If that's your desire, I want to ask you to stand to your feet as we commit our lives to Jesus to make disciples. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Wow, what an awesome thing. You take us sinful human beings, ungodly, unworthy, stained in every which way with sin. Yet you call us your sons and daughters. And you love us so much, you disciple us. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for the patience that you pour into our lives. Thank you for your grace. 
Lord, here we stand. We want to be your disciples. Make us like you, Jesus. We commit to that, but we also commit ourselves tonight to be used by you to fulfill that great commission, to go, to teach, to baptize, to make disciples. Oh, Father, help us to do that, to do the work for one soul, and in doing that work for one soul, to do it for many and to do it for eternity. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen.